Okay, well now there's a well-known proverb of the Lord Jesus Christ that people say, a prophet has no honour in his own hometown. Who can tell me where it comes from? Hands up those who don't know where it comes from. Honesty. Okay, who can tell me where it does come from? Nazareth. Well, yes, that's where he comes from, but where in the Bible does it come from? Where in the Bible does Jesus say, a prophet has no honour except in his own hometown? Mark? Well, it's a good chance it's going to be a gospel, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That is correct. I want to know where it comes from in John's gospel. We're going to look at John in a minute or two. Now, there's a problem, isn't it? When you've got a proverb that doesn't have a context, do we mean the same thing as Jesus does by the proverb? Always got to be able to say where the context of something is you're quoting. It actually comes from John 4, if you'll turn there with me, John 4. Jesus has just spoken to the Samaritan woman. Uh, are we working with Bibles? Well, I will read it all out to you then. Jesus has spoken to the Samaritan woman and now he's preached to all the Samaritans. And in chapter 4, verse towards the end of the chapter, verse 41, and, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has, prophet has no honour in his own hometown. So he comes to Galilee, which would lead us to expect that he wouldn't have any honour there. But what we read is, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now that doesn't quite make sense of our expectation. He just said there'd be no honour in your own hometown. He comes to his own territory, to his own state, Galilee, and you'd expect it to say that unlike the Samaritans, they didn't welcome him, but rejected him. But in fact what it says is, They welcomed him. You see the problem? It's actually worse when you read that he goes on, so when he came to Galilee, the Galilees welcomed him. So is therefore thus, as a consequence of his proverb that he won't be accepted in his hometown, they accepted him. Doesn't make sense until you read the rest of the sentence. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. If he has no honour there, why is he welcomed? Well, it's because they were at the feast and saw him at the feast in Jerusalem. That still doesn't make sense to a lot of you, doesn't it? Because what happened at the feast that would persuade the Galileans to welcome Jesus. They didn't honour him, we're told, because they had seen his works in Jerusalem at the Passover. But the passage doesn't make sense. Now, when a passage doesn't make sense, you know that you've got it wrong. Because it does make sense. There's never a problem in the text. The problem's always in your head. So what you do then is read on and forget about it. No, what you do then is read back and try and work it out. It's the exact reverse reaction you should be saying. You should be really pleased with me if I'm confusing you at this stage because I'm giving you the opportunity to learn something new. It's a great thing when I don't understand the Bible. When I understand it, I don't read it. 
When I don't understand it, I wrestle with it and it reads me and changes my attitudes to everything. So what happened back at the feast? Well, it's actually back at chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So that's what the Galileans saw, what happened there in Jerusalem back at the feast of the Passover. And we read, that in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who had sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume us so the Jews said to him What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Chapter 2 tells us about the signs that Jesus did and the signs that he was asked for. So in verse 18, there's a request for a sign. What sign do you do to show us that you have the authority to do what you're doing in cleansing the temple? For the context of that request for a sign was the cleansing of the temple. So when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he saw the terrible abuse of the temple, which was symbolised the very house of God, and there were money changers. Here were the money changers and the sellers of animals. For at Passover time, all the Jews of the world would have come to Jerusalem up to the temple and to offer sacrifices. And of course, they had to offer oxen or sheep or pigeons, depending whether they were rich or poor. And they had to offer up their money. But it was easier to buy an animal there than to carry it across the Mediterranean. And when you paid up the money, you couldn't use a blasphemous Roman coin. You had to use the temple currency. And so you changed your money when you got there. It was all a matter of really first-class commercial materialism and consumerism that America would be proud of. (laughs) This was big business of the temple tourism authorities. Religious tourism has always been big business right back in the first century. But they had forgotten the purpose of God's house. It was a house of prayer for all nations, not a market for greedy people to become rich in. So Jesus acted with force and vigour to remove the offensive temple trade and the traders saying, verse 16, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The reason Jesus said it was understood by the disciples, possibly later, we're not told when they understood it, but it was Psalm 69, the Psalm of the suffering Messiah, that Jesus quotes at the crucifixion actually, but he also quotes here, zeal for my house will consume me. This was his motivation, this was his concern. This also is what would consume him. Consume him in his passion for God's house. Consume him because of that passion would lead to his death. And the enemies in the psalm are seen. For the psalm is all about the enemies crowding around the Messiah The Jews are the ones who are the enemies in chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, well, what sign do you show for doing these things? It was a a request to justify his actions, to show his supernatural authority to defend himself. They didn't see what was wrong with the temple trade. They only saw 
it was wrong to interfere with the temple trade. Who was this Jesus to take such a high-handed attitude? So we read in verse 19, Jesus' extraordinary answer for the request for the sign. His sign will be the resurrection. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Uh, Of course, they didn't understand what he was talking about. Even the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about till we're told after the resurrection. Then they remembered and worked out what it was about. And their failure to understand is seen in the Jews' unbelief that continues on in verse, uh, verse 20. They said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? It's one of the ways in which we know the dating of Jesus, actually. Because we know the temple reconstruction started in 19 BC, so you count up the 47 years, and you're around 27 AD, as that's how we know when Jesus was there, because it's that kind of casual off-handed comment. It's not saying, let me tell you the date of Jesus. It was just referring to the temple. And so we know when it was built. It hadn't, wasn't finished till 64 AD. It was, it was up and working. It was massive. The temple had several football fields inside. It was huge and the huge stones, in fact the Wailing Wall is the only bit of its left because it was destroyed six years after it was finished in 70 AD by the Romans. The sheer size and magnitude of this endeavour made Jesus' three-day claim seem to be absurd. But they had forgotten what the temple was. The temple is the place where God meets man and man meets God. That's what the temple is. It's not the building. It's the place where God meets us and where we meet God. And in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is where we meet God and where God meets us. So that once he has died and risen again, you really don't need the building anymore. In fact, the building is totally redundant and will be destroyed as Jesus predicted and prophesied it would be. For now we meet God in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, killed for us and raised for us. It was only after the event that we read the disciples came to belief in verse 22. It wasn't simply the resurrection, it was Jesus' words and the words of scripture that they came to believe. For a sign without a word is not easily understood and a sign that doesn't signify anything cannot be understood for it has no meaning. Signs have to signify something else. Symbols have to symbolise something else. The important thing is what it signifies, what it symbolises, not the sign. You see any manner of young men going around with, uh, what do you call them, you call them sloppy joes, uh, hoodies on, with, you know, uh, Oxford University, Cambridge University. What does that sign mean? It means that an auntie was a tourist in England. (laughs) That's what it means, you see. It doesn't mean that they've ever attended and it certainly doesn't mean that they've studied because attendance at a university and study at a university are two quite different things. (laughs) What does the sign symbolise? It's the words that tell you, that explain the symbol. And they came to understand the meaning of Jesus cleansing the temple because the meaning was Psalm 69 which Jesus quoted. And so it's his words and... The prophecy says, see there, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now all this introduces other signs because then 
Jesus continued in verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And these are the Jesus signs that the Galileans who came up to Jerusalem for the feast had seen. For they believed on his name because of the signs that he did. You would have thought that verse 23 that I just read to you was a great sign of success. Here's a successful ministry that Jesus has. He does these miracles before people and they believe in him. Many believe in his name. That is what he wants. For those who believe in his name will have eternal life. And it was many who sided with him for they saw his works the signs and miracles he was doing, and they were persuaded that God was truly with him. But verse 24 is another shock to our expectations. But is that someone's stomach rumbling? <laughs> They're very sick in the back row there. For, of course, the people who aren't here today and who are listening on tape can't hear what we've just heard and what they're laughing about, which teaches them they should turn up to Sunday school. But... I love you out in tape land. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. We, we get the feeling of this text a little bit better if we understood the word believe is the same word as entrust in the Greek. We can't say it like this in, in the English. It doesn't work to say... Uh, he did not believe himself to them. That's not English. So our translators turn it into do not entrust himself to and therefore it sounds like something different. It might be better if we translated it in verse 23. Many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing but Jesus did not trust himself to them. You then hear the parallel. They're trusting him but Jesus doesn't trust them. Which is more important, that you trust Jesus or Jesus trusts you? You've got to remember who's on the bench, who's in the dock. Right? Most people in the dock think that they can sit in judgment on the bloke in the bench. But it's the other way around, isn't it? It's very clear. Jesus didn't trust these people who believed in him because they saw his miracles. Very important to notice why he didn't trust in them. He didn't trust in them because he knew what was in man because he knew all people and indeed need no one to bear witness about man for he himself, verse 25, knew what was in man. What is it that Jesus knew about us that meant he didn't trust us? He knew we were sinners but more than that, he knew that, his, that this belief in him, this belief in signs and miracles, this miracle belief was not the real thing, not the genuine thing, not the real McCoy, do you use that phrase? One of our old Australian phrases, it wasn't dinky die. Don't ask me to explain it. It's just, it wasn't the thing. People who believe because they see signs are not true believers in his word and therefore not in him. And this introduces us to one such man, namely Nicodemus, the man who believed but Jesus didn't trust. Uh, chapter divisions in our Bibles are generally helpful but quite often unhelpful. This is one of the most unhelpful in the whole Bible. Uh, just read continuously and you can see it. I'm reading from verse 25 and I'm going to go into chapter 3. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew him, himself knew what was in man. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It just flows straight on, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't trust man. Now here's one that he doesn't trust. And Nicodemus, he doesn't trust. Why? Well, because what does Nicodemus say? Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus is a miracle believer. Miracle believers are not Jesus believers. They think they're believers, Jesus believers, but they only believe because of the miracles. They're not actually the real thing. And so Jesus then turns to him and says, you must be born again. Sometimes people feel sorry for Nicodemus. I used to when I didn't understand the Bible, didn't understand this passage properly. I used to feel sorry. He turns up and says, Jesus, you're a great man. Yeah, God's with you. Look at the signs that you're doing. And before he asks his question, Jesus answers and says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He said, well, you know, thank you. I'll compliment you again sometime. I mean, it, it just seems so rude that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus repeats it. That's in verse 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you must be born again. Verse 9, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here's the problem for Israel. Its own teachers, like Nicodemus, because he's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of Israel, these own teachers don't know what to look for with the coming of the Messiah because they don't know the Scriptures. If they knew Ezekiel 36 and 37, they would have known that the coming of the Messiah involved resurrection from the dead. You know the Valley of the Dry Bones passage? You may or may not, re you might remember it from an ego spiritual, but it's, it's actually in the Bible, 37, and 36 is about the coming of the new age when we'll be washed clean with water and given a new spirit to be born again. It's all there in Ezekiel 36, 37. And so he's only saying what the Old Testament is saying, but the teachers are not listening to God's word. Like the disciples, you see, they didn't believe God's word. And the believers in miracles don't understand what the miracles mean. You think a miracle is self-explanatory. It's not self-explanatory. It means something. But what does it mean? Without the words, you do not know what it means. But when they saw the resurrection, they remembered Jesus' words. They remembered the scriptures and they came to believe. And so Nicodemus, well, looking down chapter 3, verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so there is the background to this strange little part in chapter 4. Jesus doing signs. Jesus in Jerusalem. Mind you, he did signs before that. Because if you look back to chapter 2, verse 1, you have the great sign of the turning of the water into wine at the, at the feast. And remember, that is described at the end of that event, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, what is that sign about? Well, the clue to the sign of the turning of the water into wine is that the water that was turned into wine was the water set aside for purification. That's the water he turned into the best wine. Moses, you see, had given us the law, but Jesus gives grace. 
And that is what you've been introduced to back in chapter 1. Here is the law and rules to wash your body, but Jesus is going to give you the spirit to change your heart. There is the sign and the clue is in the wording that has been there. And it happens because although it's not yet Jesus' hour, his mother has the right attitude. She says, do whatever he tells you. So he has confidence in him and therefore his word. And so they do it and it happens. And if you understand what it's about, you will see now grace, new life is coming. All that's in preparation to chapter 4. For in chapter 4, we see the second sign in Cana. Uh, the sign that's a little bit after our problem verse about welcoming him. You see, verse 46 of chapter 4 I'm on to now. So he came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, now listen to Jesus' rebuke. You know, again, this man comes asking for something that seems right and proper, and, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, you poor man, what a dreadful thing. Let me come and help you. That's not what he says. He says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. You're one of those miracle believers. You want me to do a miracle so you'll believe. Actually, that's not right. This time, the man just believed. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's not entering into theological discussions. He's not even... In, he's just a desperate dad. That's all he is. Jesus said, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word. See, he didn't need a miracle to believe. He believed the word. He was not a miracle believer. He was a word believer. And so he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour that he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus comes showing grace and truth in the miracles that he is working but you need to believe his word not his miracles. His word not his miracles. You see you still have the same problem today. People use the resurrection as an argument and proof for the existence of God which is a nonsense because Jesus said to uh, the, uh, the, the rich man, um, Dives as we sometimes call him, you know, Lazarus and Dives, rich man, poor man. Jesus says in Luke 16, 31, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. The miracles do not persuade. The word of God is what persuades. Because the miracle is meaningless without the word of God explaining it. And so here is the, the problem that we have, that we still have in our world today. People want miracles. They want to see God at work in order to believe. And they believe in miracles, miracles more than they believe in the word of God. Let me show it to you from a strange other pace. Back to Mark's gospel, just to show that it's not just John. Back to Mark's gospel, chapter 6. 
Mark chapter 6. Um, Jesus is walking on the water in chapter 45 to 52. He's fed the 5,000 in chapter th uh, verse 30 through to uh, 44. I'm taking it that you know about Jesus feeding the multitude. I take it you know about Jesus walking across the water. But do you know this bit? He meant to pass by them. Why did Jesus mean to pass by the disciples? They're in the boat floundering in a huge storm looking like they're going to sink. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. That's freaky enough and really so terrifying. And he doesn't come to them. He's going to walk straight past them. That seems strange. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. I reckon I would have been too. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. Now that's scary. If you remember who I am is. I mean, it's translated, it is I, but actually the Greek is I am. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. You know when they say do not be afraid, that's the time you are? You know, it's do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. Hang on. They were astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves. What's the loaves got to do with the stilling of the storm and the walking on the water? I mean, if, they, if they'd understood the, the, the loaves, they would have expected the stilling of the storm. Huh? Now you might say, well, if he can feed 5,000, he's strong enough to still a storm. No, that's not it. No, no. You've got to understand what the miracles are about, what they mean, what they signify, what they symbolise. The feeding of the 5,000 was the fulfilment of the expectation that a prophet like unto Moses would come who would feed the multitude in the wilderness. If you understood the new Moses has come, then you would be not surprised that someone was going to lead you across the stormy water because guess what Moses did? He led the people across the, across the Red Sea, remember? And so if they'd seen in Jesus the new Moses, they would not have been astonished at the stilling of the storm and that he was walking ahead of them to make it calm. But because they didn't understand the meaning of, the, of, of one miracle, they didn't understand the meaning of the next miracles, they didn't understand any of the miracles. I love the, the, the disciples because they were so thick. Gives us all a chance, friends, doesn't it? Right? You, but notice the nature of miracles. Miracles are not just demonstrations of power to make you say, oh, wow. They actually have symbolic biblical significance, importance, symbolism. The turning of the water into the wine was the replacement of the old law with the new age of the spirit. Certainly, Jesus did cure people because they were sick and they were desperate, etc. But the little interchange here with the man whose son is desperately ill, is a reinforcement of the whole problem of Galilee. The Galileans shouldn't have welcomed Jesus because that's his hometown and prophets have no honour in the hometown. But they did welcome Jesus because they were false believers. That's why they welcomed him. Why were they false believers? Well, they were back in Jerusalem and they saw the miracles and the miracle believers of Jerusalem were not true believers. That's why Jesus didn't trust them. Well, there you, you hadn't thought of that before today, had you? Now, that's because you didn't know where the verse came from, the proverb, and you see you knew the, bar, you knew the text, but you hadn't learnt the, the number of the verse and the chapter. Very naughty. Okay. <laughs> Let me talk about the signs of our time then, you can see, in this, because this has implications for a whole range of things. 
but let me give you two of them because they are very common. You see, temple worship is still alive and well, even though Jesus has demolished it. Even though Jesus has replaced it in such a way as to make temple worship completely obsolete, we still go on with temple worship, which is absurd and stupid. St Paul's Cathedral, you ever been to St Paul's Cathedral? Magnificent building in London, absolutely stunning building, just one of the great architectural pieces of all the world. As you as a tourist go in in order to buy your uh, tea towels and mugs and cups and things like that, you go through a a revolving door, not through the main door, which is basically closed unless the Queen's going to pop in. And so, unless you're the Queen, then you go through the big door, I guess. But if you're not, then you go through the, 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 the revolving door, which are glass doors, and etched into the glass doors is a text from Scripture. If it's a text from Scripture, it must be right. No, could be a verse from Job. Some of Job's comforters, God says, said the wrong thing. So any set of words aren't necessarily the truth without their context and their proper meaning. Well, the text they use is from Genesis 28, 17. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate to heaven. Now, I think St Paul's Cathedral is a magnificent building, but I sure hope heaven's better. <laughs> it's not the gate to heaven. It's not the house of God. They've actually taken a verse out of its context, comes from Jacob and at Bethel, out of its context and applied it to their building and created a theology of the temple, which is the exact reverse of what Jesus did when he came to the temple. My family hate touring with me. You could guess why, I guess. (laughs) My brother told me, when you're in Alabama, Philip, Be really nice and positive and they still will think you're criticising them given your nature of uh, being positive. (laughs) My family hate going. I went to uh, King's College uh, Chapel. That again is one of the most magnificent buildings. Much smaller kind of building but still magnificent piece of architecture built in the reign of Henry VIII um, uh, at King's College. It's just, it's a stunning building. And again, big sign saying, this is the house of God, this is the temple of the Lord, this is, so therefore be quiet, be reverent, because you are in the house of God. But right there next to that sign, they've got big uh, tables out uh, selling um, uh, uh, records of the King's College Chapel choir singing the Christmas services and and uh, tea towels and mugs and uh, key rings and all kinds of, of trinkets and trade. Now, I had a problem when I got there. If I believed the sign, then following the Lord Jesus, I should have driven out the money changers and the sellers. But if I didn't, if it wasn't the temple of God, then the tourists who were wandering around thinking it was the temple of God needed to hear about the gospel and I should speak up loudly rather than follow the sign which says be quiet. So I had a choice. Either start preaching the gospel in a loud voice for the salvation of mankind or destroy the, 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 the uh, traders in the temple. That was a difficult choice for me, but I chose one of them, to which my family then all withdrew from the madmen that they were related to <laughs> as far away as they could go and nicked out as quickly as they could until the people would ask, come and ask me to uh, follow the sign. But I refused to buy that sign. You see, Australians are convicts deep down. You know, <laughs> Authority doesn't ride easily with us. But you see the problem? There is temple worship, live and well, in this day and age, and temple worship in this day and age is as corrupt as it was in Jesus' day because the temple has been done away with. 
When, when I come to the States, I often hear people, Baptists, Presbyterians, everybody talk about their church building as their sanctuary. No, my sanctuary is in heaven. No rain shelter is my sanctuary. And there's not a sanctuary within the temple. That, that, that's, not, that's not true. There are no communion rails that create the sanctuary for a church in the Book of Common Prayer. There are no communion. They weren't invaded, invented until Archbishop Lord, almost 100 years after Cranmer had died. Uh, Cranmer died against temple worship, as did St Stephen, the first martyr, because he understood that the temple was done away with in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But so much of church building, church practice, church existence, church liturgy is the return to temple worship. You can't preach Jesus risen from the dead in a temple and expect people to understand, if it's your temple, people to understand the message of the resurrection. We have a high priest who is in heaven where on the altar he has offered up the perfect sacrifice for all time that does away with all other sacrifices, makes us all priests so that we can now all enter into the presence of God. But here's our building and our priest and our altar and our sacrifices where you've got to go each week if you want to get into touch with God. Which of those messages is the right message? Because they are actually contrary to each other. Or again, people turn to miracles and find them, not the thing, what they signify, but the wonder and amazement that has confused their faith. Today there's no shortage of miracle workers peddling the name of Jesus in terms of miracles they proclaim and I'll say say, making money out of it on their television. But true faith is listening to his word and trusting him, not being impressed by showmanship or the inexplicable or the power of the extraordinary. I've got a wonderful quote from uh, Spurgeon in his book on prayer where he says, imagine that I go down the aisle at the end of my sermon and at the aisle there I'm met by an angel and the angel says, I have a word from God for you, Mr. Spurgeon. What would, what would I say, says Spurgeon? I'd say, I don't want to hear it, thanks. And the angel says, no, no, you must listen to what I've got to say. I'd say, I'd rather you didn't. He said, but God has told me I must tell you this. Mr. Spurgeon said, well, I don't want to hear it, but if you must do what you must do, then you must do what you must do, but I'd rather you didn't. And then the angel says to me, Mr. Spurgeon, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And Spurgeon says, then I would say, be gone, you damnable angel. Because up until now, I had my faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God, and you're tempting me to put my faith in the word of an angel. Powerful illustration, isn't it? Because you know and I know we'd like an angel to kind of whisper into our ears, wouldn't we? (laughs) kind of neat to know that your name is actually there isn't it well it is if the lord jesus christ has died for you and if the gospel is true you don't need the miracles the angel that's really um so when i call out these false religions people generally shoot me they say i don't believe in church which is ridiculous because i spend more time going to church than most people or they say, I don't believe in miracles, which is ridiculous because I pray for people and pray for miracles to be happening to this day. They don't hear. They don't hear because they are so committed to their idols. 
the idolatry of the church, the idolatry of the supernatural miracles. Neither idolatry is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in three days built the temple. Sorry about question time. <laughs>